Well, tonight we continue our evening studies in Letter to the Hebrews, and we have reached Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 20 to 22. Let me read those verses to, to you. Hebrews 11 verses 20 to 22. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now in these three verses, the writer of this letter concludes the survey he has uh, been engaged in in the first part of Hebrews 11, the survey of the patriarchs, that is those leaders of, of the people of God before Moses. And after the drama of the last uh, study, the study where God uh, gave Isaac back to Abraham in a, a metaphorical resurrection, uh, we could feel that these verses 20 to 22 are almost an anticlimax after that drama. But as Edgar Andrews in his commentary on Hebrews says, life's inevitabilities outnumber life's dramas. And two of those inevitabilities, unless our Lord returns first for each one of us, is old age and dying. And we see how the writer here, as he is reminding his, his readers and his hearers, of the need for persevering faith, he's saying that persevering faith is something that also applies not only to the more dramatic, uh, more, we might say, eventful things that happen in life, but also to the very real and very mundane matter of growing old and dying. And that's why we had that first reading, Ecclesiastes 12. I don't know if you realize it, but all the first eight verses or so of that chapter are a kind of allegory of what it is uh, to grow old. So he gives his lesson to Solomon in the first verse, remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come. What are these difficult days? Well, they're days of old age, days when our mental and physical powers begin to fail. And in verses 2 through to verse 7, we have an extended allegory concerning old age. And uh, he speaks of, for example, of the almond tree blossoming. That's the whiteness of the hair. He speaks about the windows growing dim. That's the failure of eyesight. He speaks about being afraid of height and of terrors in the way. This is the frailty uh, and fears that come in old age. When the keepers of the house tremble, these are the legs trembling, and so on. And then you get to verse 6. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain. And here we have two things coming together. The first is the preciousness of life. Uh, it's silver, it's golden. It's a pitcher, it's useful for carrying water. And yet the fragility of life. The cord can be loosed, the bowl can be broken, the pitcher can be shattered, the wheel 
can be broken. And in these uh, graphic and uh, memorable ways, the writer is reminding us that here is a journey that we're all on. There's not one of us in this room that's not on this journey. And we are reminded, even as we come to look at this passage in Hebrews 11, that these patriarchs also were on that journey. It used to be said of the early Methodists that they died well. And by that, John Wesley meant that even if they were racked with pain in their sufferings as a result of old age and death coming upon them, when there wasn't the, the same medical care and so on, and the same access <clears throat> to hospitals, that even though they might be racked with pain, yet they died in full faith in Christ, that they died often with glory on their lips. And this is really what we can say about Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They died well. Now, we need to remember that the writer to the Hebrews is somewhat challenging the mindset of his readers, his readers who had been converted from Judaism to Christianity, and now whom some of them are beginning to wonder about going back to Judaism. They become discouraged. They've been persecuted in a more minor way through economic deprivation and threatening storm clouds of further persecution. Things were tough for them, and they're beginning to flag. And he is here reminding them of one great aspect of faith. It's there found in the latter part of Hebrews 10, that faith has this quality in it. If it's real faith, if it's God-given faith, yes, it justifies us, it brings us to Christ as our righteousness, but this same God-given faith perseveres. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so we're reminded here that this is something that each of us needs to have in our lives in order to die well. Faith which perseveres, faith in Christ, faith in God, which is a real faith and therefore will carry us through in death. I wonder if you have that faith. I wonder if you're ready to die. Uh, our second hymn tonight uh, is written by a man called Michael Bruce and one of the verses in it uh, towards the end says thou wilt not cast me off when age and evil days descend thou wilt not leave me in despair to mourn my latter end and if you look at the dates after his name you'll realize that this man died when he was 21 years old did he know he was dying probably not at, that, at the point he wrote this hymn, because he says, Thou wilt not cast me off when age and evil days descend. Well, here are three patriarchs who were assured that God would not cast them off. And the first lesson that we draw, therefore, from these verses is that faith has its vision firmly on the future. As we see by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. 
We were reminded by Ian Buckle's sermon recently that this future includes, in a sense, the whole of the New Testament revelation of Christ and his gospel, so that these ancient heroes of the faith, as they look forward, they were looking forward to what we would enjoy in Christ and in the gospel. And in that sense, they were ministering to us. Now, that's very real, but that we must also realize that there was a more near fulfillment also. Things to come for them also meant immediate things. And each of these patriarchs here, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, had something in mind for the more immediate uh, time. So, for example, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. And we can read about that blessing in Genesis chapter 27 and verses 28 and 29. And we remember that this is when Jacob, in a sense, stole the blessing. He um, made himself have the clothes and the smell of, of Esau's clothing and so on. And his father was nearly blind and didn't discern it was, it, it was Jacob, but he got the blessing. So uh, uh, Isaac says, Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. It is in fact the essence of the blessing that's already come upon Abram in Genesis 12, that God would give him a land, that God would give him a seed, a posterity, that God will make his name great, that God will make him a blessing and those who, who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. It's the same covenant promise in essence. And amazingly, as later on, Isaac finds that he's been tricked into giving this blessing to Jacob, the younger son. He doesn't go back on it. He doesn't, as it were, renege on it. He recognizes the hand of God in it. And even though he has a blessing also for Esau, that blessing is entirely to do with material things. So by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, yes, but particularly Jacob, as the one who was the heir to the Abrahamic promises. And then we have that same fact in Jacob blessing. Again, there is a sense in which there's something more immediate in prospect, as well as the future in Christ. So by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. We need to recognize here that twice Jacob does something very unusual because by the cultural standards of the day and perhaps uh, still in many places and many situations, the blessing, the inheritance comes to the oldest and uh, at this time the oldest son. But twice uh, Jacob overturns this cultural norm. It's God's sovereignty at work. And so instead of blessing Reuben, the first son of Jacob, 
he blesses Joseph, the 11th son, although his first by his wife, Rachel. That's the first way in which he overturns the norm. But secondly, he does in another way, in, in his blessing of, of the children of Joseph. If we turn to Genesis chapter 48, we can just pick out a few verses here. Genesis 48, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So here's Joseph coming into the sick room of his father Jacob, and he has his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. And verses 13 and 14, or 12, 13 and 14, So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand. Israel here is Jacob, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph uh, uh, and we read in verse 17, Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So uh, what we have here is Jacob, as it were, crossing hands and favoring the younger son, Ephraim, before Manasseh. And we can read more about the blessings that Jacob had for the various sons, his various sons in Genesis chapter 49. And then in verse 22, we find Joseph also uh, blessing concerning or praying and having faith concerning things to come. Verse 22 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. We do just need to keep looking at the detail tonight in these things in order to get What's going on? So in Genesis chapter 50 and verses 22 and following, we can read about that. Verse 22, Joseph, now an old man, 110 years old. And verse 24, Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So he was indeed looking at things to come, but those things were concerned with the departure of Israel out of Egypt. And then 
into the promised land. And so we come to Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, as the children of Israel with Moses left Egypt, we're told in verse 19 that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Moses remembered that uh, promise, or that would have been communicated to him, and he fulfilled it. He fulfilled that solemn duty. You see, Joseph believed God's promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God would give his people a land, God would give his people a blessing in future, and he was exercising faith in things to come. What you have here then is three elderly men, three old men, three dying men. But their, their vision, their focus is on the promises of God and on things to come. We don't read here three elderly men groaning and grouchy and moaning. But we read of three men whose focus is on the future, whose focus is on the future with God. What's an example of Hebrews 11 verse 1? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Often we think, as this chapter 11 encourages us, to think of people like Gideon, Barak, and Samson. We think of the great victories given in battle. We think of Moses uh, turning his back on Egypt, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And here among it, we have these examples of faith. Not the dramatic but yes, the inevitable of those who are old, who are failing, and yet they've got their eyes on things to come. They're trusting in God's future. Notice we say God's future because, of course, there's an element here that is entirely unexpected. It is the overturning of what was called the primogenitor that was the the inheritance going to the firstborn and instead going to younger sons. But they trusted in God and in his arrangements. And we can see, we can feel something of the challenge of this. We can feel it in our own day. As God reminds us that we must trust in him concerning the future. Maybe uh, we too will face all kinds of difficulty, unexpected, maybe difficulty that will lead to death, to disease and death, but we must look to God's future. We must trust in his promises. There are a lot of promises that we can take hold of, even as we think of things to come, not just the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, glorious like an army with banners, but there are other promises. Think of these, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Think of this, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. Think of this promise, all that the Father gives me will come to me and him who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. 
Well, think of that promise at the end of Jude, the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour be glory and majesty and so on. Yes, precious promises that we can individually take hold of as we are inspired by the example of these elderly brethren in the faith. Yes, there was another, you might call believer, but that's not really the right word, another hero of the faith who never grew grow old, who never grew old. He was the Lord Jesus Christ, 33 years old when he died. And he didn't ask anyone to make provisions concerning the carriage of his bones. He didn't ask anyone to make provision concerning his mortal remains, but he too was looking to the future. He knew what the future was going to bring. We've recently just looked at this in Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. He knew what the future was going to bring. As he began to take the twelve aside and tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die a violent death as the sin offering for his people. But he had faith in his father. He trusted in his father for the future. And so he says next, and the third day he will rise again. No commands concerning his bones because he knew that at the end there would be an empty grave. He knew that he would be raised gloriously from the dead. But in that sense, he is another example to us of someone who knows death is going to come and yet his eye is on God and on the future. And this is one of the things that the writer says in Hebrews chapter 12. As that we are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking forward to that. He was looking forward to seeing his seed, those for whom he died. He was looking forward to going back to his heavenly father. He says to his disciples, if you knew where I was going, you'd be glad for me. He, he knew where he was going and he was looking to that. I wonder if that's how we are in our souls concerning the future. You know, someone has said faith is rather like a telescope. Faith looks to the things far off and by faith they are brought near. Do we have that in our hearts and minds concerning the various individual and corporate promises of God. So firstly, we can say this, that faith has its vision firmly set on God's future. And secondly, as we've already said, faith is not even limited by old age and death. Now, I do not want to minimize old age and what follows on are very real problems, and we've 
known as a society uh, in recent months just what a problem uh, death is as it struck so many families in the pandemic. But you know, even such a problem should not stop us believing in the promises of God and being a blessing. Here are these men, these patriarchs, weak and ill, and yet they're blessing others. Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and indeed he blessed all his children, Genesis chapter 49. Joseph was concerned for the blessing of the people of God as they took his bones into the promised land. Even when they were weak and even when they were ill, even when death cast its shadow over them, they were thinking of others. You know, we can pray. Those of us who are getting older can pray for others. I know indeed that there are those that have problems with dementia and that is an appalling affliction. But as long as God allows us the right use of our faculties, we can pray for the church of Jesus Christ. We can pray and not complain. We can continue to believe in Christ and earnestly trust him, however weak and ill any of us become. You know, there's only one last enemy to face, and that is, of course, death itself. And the Apostle Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as he speaks in verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, there is something appalling about death. It's it's, uh, presence. There's no way that we can disguise that its presence is deeply disturbing. But, you know, the Bible would teach us that death... Well, think of this. We had a week or two back in our church, someone was preaching, we had a wasp, a really big, juicy wasp. And it was flying around towards the pulpit. I think it was Russell Brett preaching. And I was sitting there praying that it wouldn't sting him. I'm sure others were as well. And then it flew to the back and and, uh, was a problem at the back. It was very threatening. But you know, death isn't like a wasp. It's like a hoverfly. A hoverfly has the same markings as a wasp. It's part of its camouflage. It looks like a wasp, but it hasn't got a sting. It can make perhaps a big buzzing noise. It can be threatening. It can look threatening, but it hasn't got a sting. And for Christians, death has lost its sting. Because Christ has died for us. Christ has taken the sting of death to himself. The sting of death, we're told, is sin. The strength of sin is the law. So the sting that Christ suffered for us was an appalling sting. It was worse than any hornet, any wasp that you can think of, because the law is God's holy law. And sin is an offense against his law. And so God caused Christ to suffer for our sins, for our law-breaking. And that has removed the sting of death for those who die in Christ. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, O hell, where is your victory? The answer is the sting has been removed. The answer is death has been disarmed. Here's this great giant death, this Goliath. 
And here comes our David, our son of Jesse, to the fight with his apparent insignificance and apparent weakness. And yet, in the weakness of his death on the cross, he disarms Goliath. And he causes now death to tremble in his presence. Because he is now the giant in his glorious resurrection. And death has been defeated in Christ. And there is nothing ultimately to fear. Yes, it's unnatural. It's disturbing. It's a reminder of the sin of Adam. Reminder that through Adam's sin, death came into the world and that Sin, that liability to judgment has come upon all persons and death will happen to everyone until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. But it reminds us too that Jesus has conquered death for his people and there's nothing to fear ultimately. It is to be with the Lord. To die is to be with the Lord. And again, I have to ask you tonight, are you ready for that? As Michael Bruce reminds us, you don't need to be 70 or 80 or 90 before that happens. It can happen very early, much earlier than anyone thinks. And if your trust is in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, you can hear what he says here. He says, let not your heart be troubled You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What was Jesus talking about there? Was he going with a sort of duster and a hoover to dust up the mansion? No, the preparation is his Death on the cross, his agony and his cries and his suffering as our substitutes under the wrath of God. And he's gone through that. And he's gone to prepare through that the mansions for all the elect people of God. And to trust in him as the way, the truth and the life, as it goes on to say, is to be one who goes into such a mansion. Are you doing that? Are you ready for death? Whenever it comes, however it comes. Have you got a faith that's not only good for living, but good for dying? That is a question with each of us, including this preacher must ask ourselves, have we got the faith, that the kind of faith, the quality of faith that Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph had here? Perhaps this is one of the greatest examples we read in chapter 11. Perhaps there's something greater about their faith than even the faith of Gideon and Barak and others who turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Perhaps there's something more heroic about their faith as they there, Joseph in all his weakness, leaning on the top of his staff, his body bowed by old age and illness. And uh, Jacob, when he was dying, blessing, trusting 
worshipping. Oh, that God would give us such overcoming faith. Amen.